We're going to read the full chapter of Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 1, page 740. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do? My master is taking away my job. I am not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll, I'll, do, I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest man because he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. He called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. 
He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Amen. Great. Well, let's, um, let's bow in prayer, shall we? Um, Father, thank you so much for your word and pray now that you'd help us to focus. Pray for the children that they would be focusing as well, that we would be learning, growing, changing, to be the people you would have us be. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. My first job as an accountant in my early 20s was in a large chemical factory in Sydney. And uh, one day I walked into the office of a manager. It was, his office was in the production area. And so because of that, not only was I dressed in my standard accountant's uniform, you know, suit and tie and all that sort of thing, but uh, I had to wear uh, all of the safety gear, so the safety helmet and a, a gas mask around my neck, uh, just in case there was a chlorine leak because I was asthmatic and so on. And uh, so there I was. I walked into his office and I had some questions to ask about some transactions that he had authorised. He was friendly to me at first. <laughs> when I asked about a particular transaction, he's demeanour changed and he, in front of me he got onto the phone to his boss and he said to his boss uh, I've got a rather important looking accountant in my office asking questions. How about that? Important looking accountant. And I thought two thoughts running through my head. Number one he's mocking me. <laughs> Number two He's guilty. <laughs> of what? I don't know. My questions were quite innocent, just administrative questions, but he was guilty um, because there was a reason why he was mocking me. Turned out it was $127,000 worth of guilt, uh, 1980s money which he had squandered and covered up in the hope that senior management would never find out. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting how guilty people respond when they're feeling like they're being exposed. It's interesting. You know, in, uh, it's true in our passage today in Luke chapter 16. Uh, I don't know if you notice it, but in verse 1, we're told that Jesus was speaking to his disciples and I take it that this is the disciples in the broader sense because later on in chapter 17 Luke specifies the apostles but he's talking to a group of his disciples but there are some Pharisees that are sitting in on this they're kind of on the sidelines they're listening to what Jesus is is teaching and in verse 14 uh, as they're listening to this great teaching, what did they do? Well, in verse 14, 
uh, Luke tells us that they were sneering at Jesus. You get that? Instead of respecting Jesus, they were mocking Jesus. And to me, that sounds like they're guilty. There's something which is making them feel just a tad uncomfortable. Why? What is it that Jesus had said which was exposing them? Well, in Luke chapter 16, this comment about the sneering Pharisees is kind of sandwiched between two parables which Jesus tells. And uh, we're going to have a look at those two parables. They're about men and money. The, the first parable is found in verses 1 through to 9. And it's about a man who's got a nice, cushy, managerial job. He uh, manages a rich man's business. And uh, the problem that he's got is that he's about to be a former manager. Uh, he's about to join the unemployed because someone has accused him of wasting the boss's resources, wasting the boss's possessions. Now, we don't know exactly what he'd done, and we're not told. It, it sounds a little bit more like whining and dining excessively on the boss's business account than embezzlement. But whatever the case, the boss believes the allegation. And uh, the manager, he's uh, hauled into the boss's office. He's asked to draw up the financial accounts for the last time. And after that, as Donald Trump would say, you're fired. <laughs> you're fired. By the way, have you ever seen that happening in the workplace, management being fired? It ha I saw it at that chemical company I worked for. There was, a, there was a contracts manager who had his office just kind of opposite my office. His office was a nice plush office and his suit was a lot more expensive than my suit. And I saw on one occasion senior management walked into his office uh, one morning and his secretary told me later that um, they'd said to him that he had three hours to, uh, to finish up his work and to clear his office out and leave the site and never come back. In his case, that was better than going to jail because it was embezzlement. But the, the manager in Jesus' story, it wasn't quite as swift as that. He's got time to process the reality that his cushy lifestyle was about to come to an end. Uh, he had time to prepare for his future. Now that's wise, isn't it? Uh, when we know the future, what's the best thing that we can do? The best thing we can do is to prepare for it, to make plans for our future. That's what he needs to do. And so how does this manager prepare for his new reality? How is he going to make ends meet when he doesn't have the job anymore? Well, in verse 3, he, there's a couple of options which he rules out. First of all, he's not going to dig ditches. I mean, he's, sit, he's been sitting behind a desk far too long to be able to be strong enough to dig ditches. That's ruled out. Secondly, 
there's no way that he's going to be asking other people for them. He's not going to beg. That's below his dignity. But there is a third option, and it's called making friends with the boss's clients uh, with the view that maybe one of them might employ him. And he can use his financial abilities and his power in order to facilitate that. Now, some background on first century business practice might be helpful here. Uh, The law of Moses in passages like Exodus 22 and so on prohibited Jews from making loans to fellow Jews and charging interest on that. Uh, If your fellow Jew is in need, you just lend it to him. Um, You don't make profit out of it. So that was the, the law of Moses. When a farmer needed a loan, and there's a chance here, by the way, that the, the, the boss's business did include uh, land ownership, whereby he might have rented out parcels of land to tenant farmers and that they would pay him for that. When a farmer needed a loan, a manager who had the authority to make those loans out would, uh, would draw up the contract He'd agree to make the loan, he'd draw up the contract, but the repayment would come in the form of some of the farmer's harvest. The thing is that the amount of wheat or the amount of olive oil, which would be to be repaid, would actually be worth more than the money that's been lent out. Uh, It's principal plus interest, but the interest component was never actually shown on the loan document. Uh, It was was so that they would actually be able to say, well, we didn't charge him interest. We just came to this agreement about the quantity of stuff that would be returned. Now, that's that's not right. That's ungodly. But even worse, the interest might actually be the manager's commission. He might actually take it for himself. It's all ungodly, but it provides an opportunity for this soon-to-be unemployed manager. Have a look at verse 5, if you've got Luke 16 open. Verse 5, he called in each of his master's debtors. And he asked the first, well, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. Well, the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, well, take your bill and make it 800. And that's, that's how he does it. Now, we can't say for sure, but it looks like what he's done here is he's waived the interest component, although admittedly... Uh, uh, 800 to 400, that's 100% interest. That's a lot of interest. does sound excessive. But the, the issue here is what has he created? What he's created is new friends. The, the word manager in, uh, in the Bible it translates more literally as house steward. And what this guy's thinking in verse 3 is that he wants to increase his chances that his boss's clients will later on invite him into their house 
so that they can become, he can become their house steward, their manager. He's angling for a job. And in fact, in verse 8, when his boss finds out what he's been doing, he, <clears throat> he actually gives him credit, doesn't he? Uh, not for his dishonesty, but rather for his ingenuity that this guy actually thinks about his future. I reckon at this point, Jesus has hooked his audience. Jesus' followers, they came from all walks of life, didn't they? The, the Pharisees had criticised Jesus because he hung out with sinners and tax collectors. Well, guess what? These people, they're thinking to themselves, hey, Jesus is talking my language. That's, no, that's the world in which I move. I, I know exactly the type of manager that he's talking about. In fact, before I met Jesus, maybe, maybe I would have done the same thing. He's talking their language. This manager knew that his future was bleak and so he did something about it and he used money. So, why would Jesus tell a story like this? I want you to hold that thought because we're going to come back to that in a few minutes. Because he goes on to tell another parable involving money. And this one's a story about two men. We pick it up at verse 19. In verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, they say that there is one future which unites all people, uh, rich or poor. Every one of us will one day die. It's a sobering thought to consider that one day there will be a funeral service for every single one of us here in this room. Preferably not the same day. But we need to think about that. There will be a funeral for you and for me. That's the reality. The question is, have you prepared for what comes after that? That's the issue. There's a lot of people who just don't bother to give it a second thought. Like the man in Jesus' parable, the first man, he simply, did you notice that he doesn't have a name? Uh, he's simply referred to as a rich man because guess what? That's his identity. That's who he is. He's the rich man. Uh, the finest of clothes, luxurious house, big fancy gate which whenever he passed through you would kind of see this beggar at the gate and simply walk past him Ignore him. The beggar um, did have a, have a few friends. Uh, they were dogs who came and licked his sores. So who did this rich man live for? Was he living for God? 
No, he was living for himself. He was living for his pleasures, for his lifestyle, for his status, for his comfort. But unlike the shrewd manager, he ignored the peril which awaited him. Then there's the other man. In verse 20, the, the beggar, he actually has a name, doesn't he? Uh, his name is Lazarus, which means, it translates as, the Lord helps. That was his identity. Like all godly people, whether rich or poor, he knew where his only true comfort lay. There's a Christian catechism which was uh, written in Germany during the 16th century Reformation. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism. And the opening question reads like this. It asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? To which the answer is that I'm not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful saviour, Jesus Christ. And it continues with profound simplicity to expand on that. I commend the Heidelberg Catechism to you. It's right, isn't it? It's right. And if someone, who, if someone had asked Lazarus that question, what is your only comfort in life and death, what do you think this guy might have said? Who lays at the gate of the rich man with dogs licking his sores, begging for the scraps. What do you think he might have said? Well, as an old covenant man, that is, man living before the death and the resurrection of Jesus, Lazarus may well have answered by saying, in the words of the Catechism, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful helper, the God of my forefathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, then in verse 22, fast track their lives. <clears throat> Both men are now dead. Lazarus is carried by angels to the side of Abraham in heaven, or as the old version puts it, to the bosom of Abraham, to the, to the warm embrace of his forefather Abraham in heaven. But there is no such comfort for the rich man who now finds himself in the fire and torment of hell. By the way, some people say that Jesus doesn't talk much about hell, that Jesus is all about love and peace and all that sort of stuff. Nonsense. Jesus speaks a lot about judgment, a lot about hell, and he speaks about it right here. But consider the status status of these two men their status is now reversed for now it is the rich man who is the beggar and in verse 22 he is begging he is begging Abraham to send Lazarus to come to him even with a drop of water on his fingertip to put on his tongue just to soothe the quenching of his thirst from the fires of hell. 
Notice that he's still thinking of, of Lazarus as being some kind of a servant at this point. Uh, but it's too late because there is no bridge. There is no way that anyone can get from, from heaven to hell. Like the shrewd manager facing the axe as a Jew, this man should have known that there would be a day of reckoning, that there would be an eternal future beyond the grave. And yet, unlike the shrewd manager, he did absolutely zilch to prepare for that future. So in verse 27, he now begs Abraham to send Lazarus to his father's house because he's got brothers. And he's saying, my brothers need to be warned about this. Send Lazarus again to warn them. Look at how Abraham responds in verse 29. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. I'm reading through the prophet Jeremiah in my quiet times at the moment. And I've got to tell you, you ever read through Jeremiah in your quiet times? 52 chapters of judgment. It takes a long time to read 52 chapters. And I'm reading it day after day after day after day after day. And I'm thinking to myself, Lord, I get the message. Which is the point. Israel wasn't getting the message. That's why Jeremiah, and that's just one of the prophets. That's just one of the prophets. The warnings are there. Uh, the, uh, the prophets throughout the Old Testament continually warning of judgment and they are replete with, uh, uh, with, with, with the Lord uh, uh, raising with Israel the issue of, of Israelites living as if this world was all that there is, reveling in the luxury and the comforts whilst ignoring the needs of the widows, ignoring the needs of the, of the aliens in the land, ignoring the, the needs of the, of, the, of the fatherless, the poor, the warnings are there right through the Old Testament. And more than that, the law, the, the law of Moses and the prophets, they are the very oracles of God. And, and this rich man's brothers going to the synagogue every week, hearing the law, hearing the prophets, they've had ample opportunity to repent and to put their, their values the way that God wants them to have their values. They've had ample opportunity. Moreover, <clears throat> Abraham says to him that even if a man should rise from the dead, they still won't believe. And that's true, isn't it? You can see here the hint from Jesus towards his own resurrection <laughs> 
And after the resurrection of Jesus, there, there were certainly those who turned, turned to God, but there were so many who actually just ignored the resurrection, tried to cover up the res- resurrection, didn't even want people to know that the resurrection had happened. They've had ample warning. Now, I wonder if you'll turn with me back to Luke chapter 10, just for a brief moment. Because in verse 25 of Luke 10, we're told on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? This man answered by saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and, what does it say? Love your neighbour as yourself. This sums up the law and the prophets. Jesus said, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will. You will live. Do this and you will live. And the man tries to justify himself by saying, well, okay, well, who is my neighbour? And Jesus tells him a story, doesn't he? Tells him a story about a despised Samaritan who did not pass by a man who was lying on the side of the road, but he stopped and he helped this man. Didn't walk past him, didn't tread over him, didn't cross the road, didn't... but he helped him. It's no wonder. It's no wonder that earlier on that the Pharisees had sneered at Jesus. They were the custodians of the law, but they had become the experts in loopholes. So that whilst they could outwardly say that we obey the law of God, they were actually sinning. Just like in verse 18, because there's this interesting little thing that Jesus throws into the discussion in verse 18, and have a look at it. He says there, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And you think to yourself, why has he chucked that one in? In the middle of this teaching about the parables and money and so on, in fact, I, don't, I think I disagree with the NIV's subtitle there which says additional teaching. I think this is actually integral to the whole point that's being made in this passage because Luke, in Luke chapter 1, says to Theophilus, I've, I've written for you an orderly account of the life and the teachings of Jesus. So why does he chuck this one in? At this point, I think it's got to do with the Pharisees and their outward observances being inconsistent with their inward reality. And the issue here is that the Pharisees allowed men to divorce their wives uh, for any and every reason, technically, but the real reason was so that the man could marry 
and go to bed with another woman. But that they could say technically he's not sinning. Because technically he's not committing adultery because he's, he's divorced his wife so he's a free man so he can marry another person. And Jesus says that's rubbish. That's adultery. That's serial adultery. It's all legally correct, but it's adultery. These Pharisees did not obey God's law because they did not really love God. In Luke 16 here, their true God is being exposed. Why is it that they sneered at Jesus? Well, it's because in verse 14, it has to do with what they loved. And in verse 14, what is it that they loved? They loved money. They love money. That's the issue. So why, therefore, did Jesus tell this story about the shrewd manager? Well, he's not giving them a seminar on business cunning 101 here. He's not teaching this. Have a look at verse 9. In verse 9, he says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, which it will be gone, by the way, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, there's no way in the world that anybody gets to heaven by paying money to people to make friends with them so that they, he can earn his way into heaven. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. No one gets to heaven by paying for it. But if we are people who have truly experienced God's love and God's salvation, then our life's priorities are going to be flipped upside down, aren't they, from what they used to be. We will love not money, but we will love God. We will love not first ourselves, but we will love others. That's the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. In verses 10 through to 12, the point that Jesus is making here is that the money which we have in our bank accounts and in our asset portfolio actually belongs to God. It's his. He has entrusted it to us. But we have wealth which is greater than that. We have true wealth, imperishable wealth, which is in heaven. Now, do you believe that? Well, if we believe that, then it will affect what we do with the much lesser wealth that God has entrusted to us now. A few weeks ago, it was, it was great to have Perry and Karen with us, wasn't it? Do you remember when Karen spoke to us briefly? Uh, she thanked us, didn't she? she th what did she thank us for? Well, amongst other things, she thanked us for our, our money. Uh, telling us that because of the generosity of Christians such as us and others, that men and women in Beirut... <coughs> Uh, being trained for gospel ministry so that people throughout the Arab world can hear about Jesus and be saved from hell and enjoy that true, true comfort and rest 
by the side of Abraham. How about that? When you get to heaven, there will be Arabs there who, if they knew the audit trail, would be able to say to you, thank you, Sabi, which is friend in Arabic. Thank you, friend. Thank you, friend, because I heard about Jesus from someone who belonged to a church that was led by a pastor who was trained by someone in Beirut who, who you paid for. That's the audit trail. You might, meet, you might meet someone who was once a refugee in Sydney who would say, well, I heard about Jesus as a teenager through a Christian camp that I was able to go on because some children made some pizzas. I enjoyed those pizzas, didn't you? Yeah. See, as it stands at the moment, I think there's one and a half to two refugee kids that are going to go to a Christian camp, and we're hoping to add to that. Three and a half. Do I have four and a half? <laughs> Sold. That's the audit trail, isn't it? That's the audit trail. You, you buy a pizza, you put some cash in the tin... But the result of that is that a Syrian refugee or an Afghanistanian refugee or someone who's been displaced, someone who might have been a Muslim, gets to hear about Jesus and may believe and may end up in heaven. That's, you'll have friends in heaven, friends. And it might be that you meet someone who says, well, I heard about Jesus when I was living in Port Macquarie through a scripture teacher or through a on the university campus or through a Christian friend or through my parents who themselves had, had been built up in a congregation uh, in which you had invested your resources, your prayers, your life, your, even your money. They might have even heard the gospel from you. You may not have even known that they believed and repented. This is about friends in heaven. Friends in heaven. Some people may sneer, but for us, this is about using the wealth which we've been entrusted with to make friends, to make friends for life, to make friends for eternal life. That's what it's about. Let's pray, shall we? Gracious Father, we want to thank you for the friendship that we can enjoy with you through Jesus, through his sacrifice made for us on the cross. Father, we thank you for the way that you provide for us and the, uh, the gifts and the resources that you entrust into our care. And we thank you, Father God, that, uh, for the opportunities that you give us to, to use what, the things you've given to us to make friends friends which, who will go on into eternal life. Father, we pray for our own priorities that we won't be like the rich man who thought this life is all that there is and he doesn't need to think about the next life. Help us to be more like the beggar who knew that his ultimate comfort and rest and peace is found in loving and serving you and being forever by your side. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.